Hey everyone, I'm Megan, and you are listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Welcome back, and today I will be discussing a case in which there is too much information to put into one episode, so I'm going to be splitting this into two parts. As I continue to work on this podcast, I encourage all of you to continue to share these cases. So let's get started. In March 1973, a nursing student was found murdered in a dorm room on the University of Iowa campus. Police focused almost immediately on a fellow student who was later charged and convicted of her murder, but the case doesn't end there. This is part one of the murder of Sarah Ann Ottens. It was March 1973 in Iowa City at the University of Iowa campus, and classes were closed for spring break. Most of the students either returned home or, like many college kids, decided to head to warmer weather for a short getaway. Very few students remained on campus during break, and one of them was 20-year-old nursing major Sarah Ann Ottens. Sarah was from Morrison, Illinois, which is about 98 miles east of Iowa City and not far from the Iowa-Illinois border. Sarah had spent a year at a nursing school in Morrison, then transferred to the University of Iowa for her sophomore year to complete her schooling there. She stayed on the fourth floor of the Reno Hall dorm, which had housed around 500 university students. At the time, the dorm consisted of 13 floors and was a co-ed dorm with men and women staying on alternate floors. On Tuesday, March 13th, one of Sarah's friends, Brenda Simpson, who was also staying on the fourth floor, had returned to campus from going home to Waterloo, and late that evening, around 11.30, Brenda had gone looking for Sarah. Now, Sarah stayed in room 408, but had a key given to her by one of the girls staying in room 429. During spring break, Sarah was given access to the room to watch TV and care for two cats that belonged to one of the girls. Brenda knocked on room 429, but didn't get an answer. So Brenda went to Sarah's room, but found Sarah wasn't there. So she went back to room 429 and walked in. Upon entering, Brenda found Sarah lying on the floor, face down, covered with a bedspread. A short time later, it was discovered that Sarah was dead, and after the resident hall manager was alerted, they immediately contacted law enforcement. In less than 24 hours of Sarah's death, a large amount of information had been released to the public. According to an article in the Iowa City Press by Claren Dale on March 14th, Sarah's body had been found badly bruised, and she was partially nude with her clothing having been found scattered throughout the room. A dorm official had come forward to confirm that room 429 was occupied by two other students who were both gone the day of the murder, and those students were later identified as Marie Haptasla and Margaret Ann Muir. One of the girls had gone home for break while the other one had gone on vacation to Florida. Now, investigators' first look of the crime scene revealed that furnishings and other belongings in the room didn't appear to be out of place. Both beds in the room were made, and there didn't appear to be signs of a struggle. There was a small smudge of what looked to be blood in the center of the room, and another smudge of blood near a sink in the room, and that sink 
was partially filled with a mixture of what appeared to be water and blood. The dorm official said that Reno Hall was normally locked after 4.30, and I am not sure how many entrances there were to the building, but the north door was the only door that was open between 8 and 4.30 when the dorm business offices were closed. This person also confirmed that on Tuesday, March 13th, the Reno Hall doors were locked at 4.30 p.m. It was likely that dorm residents were coming and going throughout spring break, and special keys to gain access into the building had to be ordered by the students. Prior to spring break, approximately 150 keys were requested, and based on officials at the scene, about 50 students were in the dorm the day Sarah was killed. The following day, the medical examiner, Dr. T. T. Bozik, gave a public statement regarding Sarah's cause of death. He concluded that Sarah had died of suffocation due to multiple injuries to the neck. The injuries caused swelling of the neck tissues and resulted in asphyxiation, and he refused to comment as to whether Sarah had been sexually assaulted and maintained that confidentiality for many months. After Sarah's death, four law enforcement agencies joined together in the investigation consisting of University of Iowa security officials, the IBCI or Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation, Iowa City Police, and the Johnson County Sheriff's Department. I can't help but think that is a lot of police involvement from so many different agencies. And when you are dealing with that many different entities in one case, you can have things like misinformation and mishandling of evidence. So keep this in mind because the fact that all four agencies had played a role in the investigation from the start does get brought up later on. Now, just five days after Sarah's death, officials were still investigating the crime scene and interviewing witnesses with no arrests having been made. Before I go into what I'm going to say next, keep in mind this was the first on-campus death, let alone murder, in the campus's 126-year history. So I'm sure on some aspect, the shock of it all could have caused some poor judgment on the university's behalf. Because the day before classes were scheduled to resume, University of Iowa Residence Hall Director Gerald Burke announced that the fourth floor of Reno Hall would not be sealed off while officials continued their investigation. They determined that there was no reason students couldn't return to their rooms and that students who chose were allowed to request a transfer. But other than the two women who had resided in room 429, no one else did. Now, I'm sorry, what? Even though the security had been beefed up for the rest of spring break, there was still a killer on the loose. Nobody knew at that point if this person was just someone who lived in Iowa City, which doesn't speak highly of the university's security measures at the time, or the fact that it was a definite possibility that it could have been another student. I could be wrong, but something tells me this wasn't random. This was someone who knew Sarah based on the circumstances around her death and the fact that she was covered up after. So reporters end up talking to Cynthia Coleman, who was Sarah's roommate, and in an article in the Iowa City Press Citizen, she expressed that her, along with the other women on campus, just wanted to know if police could get whoever killed Sarah, and that it was all everyone was talking about. And through her, it was also discovered that Sarah and Brenda had actually been the only two women still staying on the fourth floor during break. And that also meant before Brenda returned from Waterloo on the 13th, Sarah was on the fourth floor alone. Cynthia said she had not had any indications that anything was wrong or that Sarah was having personal issues before Cynthia left to go home during the break. 
Now, to make things even more unfortunate, Sarah had turned down the chance to go on a trip to Florida with friends during the spring break, but her decision to not go apparently was not a last-minute one. She worked at an on-campus coffee shop and decided to stay to earn more money towards her college expenses. After the murder, most of the girls on the fourth floor of Reno Hall had gotten their locks changed, which surprises me it wasn't everyone, and according to Cynthia, things in the dorm were uneasy for the first couple of weeks, but after that, it was pretty much back to normal, and it was noticeable that everyone was just a little more cautious than they were before. She noticed everyone was getting along better, and people in general were just being nicer to each other. Days and weeks went by and no new information came to light pertaining to the case until May 2nd, about a month and a half after Sarah's murder, when it was reported that a Johnson County grand jury had met on April 30th and May 1st. According to unnamed local sources, two subpoenas had been issued for grand jury appearances and sheriff's deputies confirmed that the two people who had been subpoenaed had also been fingerprinted per the request of the IBCI. And that's it. Nothing new happens or surfaces from the grand jury meeting. Everything goes quiet in the case until about two months later in July, when everyone found out that the grand jury was expected to meet again at the end of July regarding evidence in the case. According to the source, investigators divulged that their investigation was almost complete, yet no arrests had been made at that point. So July 30th came and went, and the grand jury meeting didn't happen. According to county attorney at the time, Carl Goetz, they had postponed the grand jury meeting intentionally, and they were planning to convene around Labor Day because school would be back in session, and students returning to campus would then be able to testify. Then, on August 27th, things take an interesting turn when a report in the Iowa City Press Citizen by Mark Roffner was released. The report stated that evidence was starting to come forward and that prosecutors were expected to hand over evidence to a grand jury for the following month. But that wasn't all. Prosecutors were also seeking an indictment of first-degree murder against an unnamed individual only described as being a male suspect in the case. But apparently prosecutors knew the evidence against him was largely circumstantial. Apparently during this investigation, the suspect had been repeatedly called in for questioning, but there was another male suspect that police were looking into heavily too. So it certainly raised some eyebrows, but no one knew for sure who prosecutors had their sights set on at the time. Additional details had also come to light regarding the condition of Sarah's body. There were reports that her face showed large bruises, which appeared to be inflicted either by hands or with a weapon, and there were smaller bruises on her chest. There was also a broom that laid near Sarah's body, which may have been used to inflict some of the injuries. That broom was suspected to have been used in an assault that was sexually motivated. Investigators also theorized that blood had been washed from Sarah's face and hair after she was killed, resulting in the bloody water found in the sink. Now, this is huge because up till this point, the medical examiner who conducted Sarah's autopsy refused to comment on whether she had been sexually assaulted. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that seems like quite a bit of information to be released to the public right before a grand jury meeting and a murder indictment. 
So I don't know if this was a strategic move by prosecutors or if someone close to the investigation gave out more information than they probably should have. Now back to what I had mentioned earlier about the fact that there were four law enforcement entities working concurrently on the homicide investigation. Well, around this time, allegations had surfaced that the University of Iowa security officials were making public comments that Sarah's death was a drug overdose and that multiple objects in the room had been handled before being dusted for fingerprints. A large number of the fingerprints taken from the room proved to belong to law enforcement. The district attorney's office came forward and claimed that this fact didn't cause any issues with the investigation, but it is hard to wrap my head around the fact that if officials were on scene touching items and were not careful walking through a crime scene, then it's entirely possible that they could have botched the investigation from the start by having destroyed evidence from the crime scene, allowing the killer to get away with murder. The grand jury meeting seemed to be back on schedule because about a week later, on September 6th, the grand jury convened and initially five witnesses were subpoenaed to testify, including students and security officers. And the grand jury meeting was expected to last anywhere from three days to one week. By the time the grand jury meeting started to wrap up, it consisted of eight days of testimony and upwards of 35 witnesses had actually been called to testify. And one University of Iowa student had hired an attorney and filed a motion to challenge the grand jury subpoena, but the outcome of that motion was never disclosed. Just two days later, that's when the public hears the name for the first time. The grand jury brought an indictment of first-degree murder against fellow University of Iowa student James Wendell Hall. And on September 19th, James was arrested and appeared in district court where his bond was then set at $50,000. Apparently, Hall had been a prime suspect in the murder since the beginning of the six-month-long investigation. So even though there were large gaps of time going by with no new information to the public, it was very clear that detectives had their sights set on Hall and were just gathering evidence to build a case against him. During the investigation, Hall had been brought in several times, but he exercised his Fifth Amendment right and remained silent every single time, which doesn't look good and is a good way to put yourself to the top of the suspect list. Fast forward to May 13, 1974, to when the trial began. Now, I do want to point out that the majority of my source material came from old newspaper articles, and I wasn't able to find any court transcripts, so some of these reports can be somewhat vague. The state prosecutor, Gary Woodward, opened up with Sarah's friend, Brenda Simpson. Now, for the first couple of days of trial, Brenda gave testimony of her recollection of the events that took place on March 13, 1973. Brenda had returned from a trip back home to Waterloo and met up with Sarah at the dorm. Sarah helped her carry her stuff to her room, and from there the two went and collected their mail and parted ways. Sarah was heading down to the basement of Reno Hall to purchase some cigarettes, and Brenda left to meet up with her then-boyfriend George Proctor to watch some TV in his dorm room. George stayed in Slater Hall, which was across the street from the girls' dorm. 
Around 5 p.m., Brenda returned to Reno Hall to get her purse and said that she had smelled, quote, reefer, a.k.a. marijuana, near Sarah's room. Brenda had gone to get her purse because she and George had planned to go to dinner and a movie. Around 11.30 p.m., Brenda returned to the dorm to invite Sarah over to Slater Hall with the couple to eat chicken and watch TV. Brenda knocked on room 429 and heard the cats that Sarah was caring for making noise in the room, but no one answered. Thinking maybe Sarah could be in her room, she went to room 408, but Sarah wasn't there. Brenda returned to room 429 and opened the door. There, she found Sarah lying face down on the floor and covered with what appeared to be a bedspread. Some of the sources I found also say that Sarah was covered with a bed sheet, yet others described a quilt. So either way, she was covered with a bed covering of some sort. At first, Brenda wasn't in a full panic. She shut the door and just thinking Sarah was sick, went across the street to Slater Hall, got her boyfriend and brought him back to the room. When they entered the room, Sarah didn't move or respond to them. So George nudged her foot. And when he again got no response, He walked closer to her, grabbed her wrist, looked at Brenda and said, this girl is dead. He described Sarah as cold and hard when he touched her wrist to check her. And the two also noticed that the TV in the room was on, but the sound was turned down. They took mental note that there was some sort of pot on the floor, a margarine container beside the body, and Sarah's usually straight hair was curly and had the appearance like it had been wet recently. Next, Brenda and George alerted the head resident of Reno Hall, Terry Abernathy, who lived in the dorm along with his wife. When Terry approached the scene and saw Sarah, he immediately contacted police. The testimonies of the two were almost completely identical, with the exception of two differences. One discrepancy between their testimonies was that George said the room was warm, while Brenda said the room was quite chilly and there had been a window open. But to be fair, that certainly wouldn't cross my mind as a discrepancy, really, but just the fact that everyone's temperature tolerance is different. And the other was what time Brenda had initially gone to Slater Hall that day. But from my sources, no time from Brenda or George was ever reported on to determine if there was a substantial difference, which would cause an issue. Brenda also testified that the drapes in room 429 were open and the room had faced Slater Hall and George said that it would be possible to see and identify people in Reno Hall from a vantage point in Slater. Now, Brenda and George both admitted to knowing James Hall casually, but said they never saw him in Reno Hall or at any time in the presence of Sarah Ottens. On the third day of trial, a University of Iowa student testified that he had seen James in a stairway in Reno Hall about an hour before the body of Sarah was found. This man was Ernest Robertson, who was also a football player and a friend of James. Ernest stayed on the seventh floor of the dorm and said he had received a call from James at about 10 p.m. that night and asked for Ernest to let him into the dorm. Now, apparently, Ernest didn't go let him in because James then called a second time at 1030. After that second call, Ernest went to meet him at the front door to the building. But while going through a stairwell to let him in, Ernest ran into James. Although it was unclear how James entered the building, Ernest said that James did not appear to be disturbed or excited. 
The exact time of death was never able to be established, but Gary Woodward said in his opening statement, the time of death was estimated to be between 4 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. that day. Resident Hall Supervisor Terry Abernathy was called to the stand. At the time of the trial, he was no longer on campus and was practicing as an attorney in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Terry said that on March 13th, he had returned back to the dorm from dinner and had started a floor-by-floor inspection around 10 p.m. that night, and based on the sequence of events, didn't notice anything out of place. He had also been asked if he had let James Hall into the building during the inspection, and he said he didn't remember doing so. In the afternoon of day three and morning of day four of the trial, Lieutenant Merlin Moore got on the stand to provide more information about the crime scene. He said that Sarah's face and hair appeared to have been washed and confirmed that there was a stain on the floor near the sink. This stain was damp and was consistent in both shape and pattern to indicate that it may have been left by wet hair and it was found beneath a phone book that had a red substance on the cover. So based on the scene, prosecutors theorized that whoever killed Sarah tried to put her face in the sink of water after killing her in an attempt to revive her, which obviously failed, then laid her on the floor, which caused the remaining blood and water from her hair to result in the stains that they saw. Moore was then shown photos from the crime scene, and he was asked to identify them. Among those photos was a picture of a broom found at the scene near Sarah's body, which according to Moore appeared to have a substance on the handle. Theory was that the broom handle had been used in the mutilation of Sarah's body after she was already dead. Moore's testimony also indicated that as many as 17 people entered the room before the IBCI showed up. Next on the stand was IBCI agent Dwayne Barton. Agent Barton said he dusted the room for fingerprints and was able to find prints from the sink faucet, and after an analysis, one of those fingerprints was confirmed to belong to the left thumb of James Hall. Under cross-examination, the defense questioned Agent Barton regarding how long a print could remain on a surface, such as a faucet, if undisturbed. According to Agent Barton, a print could remain on a surface for as long as two to three months, but also said that a fingerprint would be nearly obliterated once that same surface was touched by another person, which would make the inference that whoever filled the sink with water was the last one to touch the faucet, and if it was someone else other than James Hall, then his print wouldn't be there. During cross-examination, defense attorney William Tucker asked Agent Barton to read a letter addressed to Sarah that was contained in a bag of evidence found in a wastebasket in the room. But Woodward's objection to the question was sustained and the letter was returned back to the evidence bag. To this day, it has never been released what the letter found in the wastebasket said or whether it truly had any relevance to the case. The defense also asked Agent Barton whether he was aware that two rooms on the same floor as Sarah were prowled within a week after the crime, and yet again, Woodward's objection was sustained and no answer was given. Next on the stand for the prosecution was IBCI chemist Rosetta Halcock, which likely provided the most compelling testimony in the case. She had testified that a hair which was found on the shoe of the defendant was consistent with Sarah Otten's, but it wasn't just found sitting on top of the shoe. 
it had been found under the shoelace of his left tennis shoe. The shoe had been obtained from a search warrant of Hall's dorm room on May 4th, just three days after the first grand jury meetings in the case. She also testified that there had been a hair found on Sarah's blouse, and it was compared to a sample from the head of James Hall and concluded that they were consistent. Now, Rosetta did say in her testimony that the testing completed only confirmed that both the hairs from Sarah and James were consistent, but they were not confirmed to be a match. The clothing Sarah was found wearing consisted of only a blouse that had been torn and covered in stains, which Halcock was able to identify as blood. And a sample had also been collected from the sink, and the results came back confirming there was blood in the water. But of course, with DNA testing in its infancy at the time, they were only able to confirm it was blood and not able to identify whose blood it was. Investigators had all come to the same conclusion that the murder occurred in room 429 because of lack of evidence to indicate the murder could have taken place anywhere else. Which brings us to the findings from Sarah's autopsy, which was conducted by forensic pathologist Douglas Schnetzler three hours after the discovery of Sarah's body. The pathologist found that the area around Sarah's neck and jaws showed linear areas of contusion or bruising to the skin, likely caused by a long, smooth, and rigid blunt object, for example, something like a pipe. The skin wasn't broken and had an unusually glass-like shiny appearance to it, implying it would have taken a very smooth object to cause the injury. Schnetzler said on the stand that he believed the broom found in the room with Sarah's body caused the injury. The pathologist also said he found small tears to Sarah's genitals, but had an absence of blood, which means she had been sexually mutilated after she was already dead. The injuries, according to the pathologist, were caused by a very rigid object of some length and not of great diameter, to which Schnetzler believed the broom was likely used in this manner. Schnetzler also said that he found an indentation on the back of Sarah's skull, which was an injury also done after death. The pressure likely from the broom applied against her neck caused death within as little as one to several minutes. According to the medical examiner, Dr. Bozik, Sarah's death definitely occurred before 10 p.m. He described bruising on her body and he found a few flakes of blood in both ear canals, both areas of the nose, and also found blood on the lower part of her body. He also stated that the indentation to Sarah's skull was not likely caused by the broom. At that point, Prosecutor Woodward held up the shoe police obtained in the search warrant that belonged to James Hall and asked if that shoe worn by Hall could have been responsible for causing the blow to Sarah's head. The move was considered unfairly influential by the judge, and the jury was ordered out of the courtroom. At that point, the medical examiner replied to Prosecutor Woodward that a kick to the head would not be consistent with her injury. After seven days of testimony, the state rested their case, and immediately defense attorney Tucker moved for dismissal, in which the judge overruled the motion, claiming the state had failed to provide sufficient evidence to warrant it. The defense had only one option in James's defense for reasonable doubt, which was to put another suspicious person in Reno Hall the day Sarah was murdered. There was no way James would have been able to claim he wasn't in Reno Hall, 
not only due to his fingerprint, but also because he provided statements that not only was he in Reno Hall that day, but he claimed to have been in the dorm three separate times that day. And he also claimed that he had spent some time with Sarah the day before she was killed. One of the witnesses for the defense, Robert D. Jones, who was a former University of Iowa student, testified that he rode with Sarah and an unidentified third person in an elevator at the Reno Hall dorm around 3.15 that day, and that third person in the elevator was not James Hall. He described this person as male, possibly Hispanic, with a dark complexion. Both this unknown male and Sarah got off the elevator on the fourth floor while Jones continued to the fifth floor, where he then went to his room, grabbed his raincoat, and left for a trip to Des Moines. After learning of Sarah's death, he said he notified authorities once he returned to Iowa City of the man he had seen in the elevator. The next witness for the defense was a woman named Elsie Barnes, who was a Reno Hall clerk and said she saw Jones and Sarah in the elevator, but could only see the hand of the third person. When Jones got on the elevator, Sarah and the unknown male were already on the elevator and appeared to have ridden together from the basement. In a very weak attempt to explain James's fingerprint, the defense also brought up the fact that a package, which was just labeled oranges, had arrived for Sarah the day before her murder, and they attempted to propose the theory that Hall had gone into room 429, eaten an orange, and used the faucet to wash his hands the day before Sarah was killed, trying to explain his presence in room 429 and his fingerprint. And you guessed it. That theory didn't get far, because Woodward's objection was sustained because the statement was based on hearsay. Now, two other dorm employees also testified to having seen an unidentified man on March 13th. During the trial, the judge had brought up the fact that several witnesses were claiming to have seen an unidentified man with Sarah the day she was killed, and the judge had asked if a composite sketch had been completed at all, attempting to rule out if there was a connection. This certainly gave the impression that investigators had tunnel vision and did not consider all leads in the case, because a composite sketch of this unknown man was never done. The final witness for the defense was a man by the name of James P. Hayes. He was James Hall's former attorney and decided to withdraw from the case so that he could testify in the trial. In his testimony, he said IBCI agent John Jute, who was the lead investigator on the case, refused to have Hall examined for any marks on his body like scratches to determine if he had recently been involved in a struggle. Hayes believed, based on the brutality of the slaying, that it was possible the killer could have been injured by struggling with Sarah, but the majority of Sarah's injuries occurred after death, and both the pathologist and medical examiner never discussed whether Sarah's fingernails had been examined to determine if there had been any signs of DNA or even broken nails. Although I would agree with James Hayes that it was something that should have been done, based on the crime scene and Sarah's autopsy, I don't know if that step would have been necessary, but then again, I could certainly be wrong. Now, on the final day of trial, the defense gets hit with a bombshell when a witness by the name of Rosemary Jones came forward and claimed she had lied on the stand. Initially, she said that she had witnessed a man knocking on room 429 and the man she saw she couldn't identify. She changed her story and said at about 3 p.m. on March 13th, Hall was indeed the man she had seen knocking on that door. 
In her original statement, she was coming out of the linen room on the fourth floor, but in her new testimony, she said she was coming out of one of the restrooms not far from room 429. She said when she testified earlier that week, she didn't recognize the man as Hall, but as of her new statement, she realized that it was him. She was asked why she had previously lied on the stand, and Jones replied that she was scared. Based on her new testimony, after Hall knocked on the door, he didn't enter the room and left. Hall's attorney then explained to Rosemary that perjury during a murder trial could carry a sentence of 10 years to life in prison. Rosemary said she was aware of that and, surprise, surprise, she confirmed that Prosecutor Woodward had granted her immunity from prosecution. Now, I don't know if I really need to elaborate on this detail because the actions somewhat speak for themselves, and based on statements from jurors afterwards, Rosemary Jones was deemed to be an unreliable witness. So, to recap what we know from the trial, James Hall was a student on campus who stayed in Slater Hall, directly across the street from Sarah's dorm. He had access to Reno Hall through friends. His multiple interactions with law enforcement, in which he refused to answer any questions, his mysterious entrance into the building the day she was killed, with no one to come forward claiming to have let him in, his fingerprint found at the crime scene along with hair evidence found to be consistent between him and Sarah, a witness who initially testified for the defense and on the last day of trial changed her story to Finger Hall as being in the dorm and near Sarah's room. But after eight days of trial, the forensic evidence against him sealed his fate. And on May 23, 1974, James Wendell Hall was found guilty of second-degree murder of Sarah Ann Ottens. And on July 3rd, the judge sentenced him to 50 years in prison at Fort Madison. Which I am sure you are asking yourselves, why am I covering this case, right? James Hall was convicted. It's a case closed. Well, that is not where this case ends. And to find out what happens next, you will need to hang on until the next episode. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Make sure to tune in in two weeks for part two of this case. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. You can find Secrets in the Cornfield, Iowa's Unsolved on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Please make sure that you leave a comment and rate the show. If you want to see pictures related to this case, you can find the Facebook page Secrets in the Cornfield Podcast and request to join the group. If you have a question or comment, you can also send me a Gmail at sitcpod at gmail.com.